0: ABI podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the resident scholar for the ABI for spring 2016 and also a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today we're talking about underfunded public pensions. This issue has been the centerpiece of many financially distressed government unit discussions, whether or not they've been eligible for bankruptcy, and we don't really see an end in sight to those discussions. So we're very lucky today to have an ideal guest for that, Amy Monahan, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and among other things, studies retirement plan regulations with the special focus on public pensions. And the American Law Institute has given her award for her scholarship on public pensions. So we're especially lucky to have her. Welcome, Professor Monahan.
1: Thank you. So let's
0: start if, by you telling us a little bit how you came to study public pensions and the surrounding legal framework, it's a bit of an understudied issue, at least in the legal academy, it
1: seems. It is for sure. In practice, I worked solely on the private employer side of employee benefits regulation. And when I first became an academic, um, my early work was all on the private employer side as well. And when I was at the University of Missouri Law School, one of my colleagues from across the quad, Mike Pagursky came over to see me. And Mike is a labor economist. He does a lot of work on the labor market effects of pension systems, particularly with respect to K through 12 educators. And he came across the quad and uh, sat down in my office because he wanted to talk about public pensions. And um, his short version was, this is, these are a really big deal. And no one understands what the relevant legal rules are with respect to what you can do with these plans. Uh, And convinced me to uh, write a paper for a conference on teacher pensions. And I thought, well, you know, it's always interesting to uh, have a chance to look at new areas. So I agreed to write the paper. um, And really through doing that paper, realized what an interesting rich field this is and uh, it's kept me fairly busy since then and that was almost 10 years ago um, and I agree that it is understudied especially in the legal Academy I think part of the reason for that is that unlike on the private side where there's one federal statute that lays out all of the rules in this case it is very specific to each individual state it can even vary within a state um, and and that doesn't lend itself very easily to uh, study because you see a lot of variation.
0: So tell us some of your key conclusions from your research, some of the takeaways that one might have if they dive into your work, which I definitely recommend to readers that they do.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I guess I'll start with, with the pretty broad uh, takeaways and and if you want to get into some of the more specifics, I'm of course happy to do that. Um, I would say the, the high level takeaways are uh, first is that law hasn't done a very good job so far in trying or in a, in correcting bad political behavior in this area. So um In my view, the public pension issue is very much an issue of law and politics, and there are big political incentives to underfund pensions, which we've seen pretty clearly. Um, But law really hasn't done a lot to fix that problem on the front end. And then on the back end, once you find yourself in an underfunded position, the law is really uncertain with respect to what you can and can't do to try to address it once you get into that underfunded situation.
0: So that is certainly an issue that bankruptcy lawyers are, are struggling with, as well as, of course, lawyers outside of the bankruptcy realm for state states and other entities that cannot file for bankruptcy. So let's start with the premise, and I get this from your work and seen some of the, the case law on it that now public pensions are usually construed as a contract obligation is that as opposed to a gratuitous promise as was true once upon a time and a bit a bit disheartening to hear about is that is that a fair assumption for us to proceed on
1: absolutely there are, there are a handful of states that take a property interest approach but the majority of states when they think about on what basis are we going to legally protect public pension benefits have decided it's some type of contractual obligation. So I would agree with that.
0: So if we're talking about a contract obligation, then we, of course, have contracts clause, uh, both in the federal constitution and then often in state constitutions. So when we're outside of bankruptcy, under what circumstances can a government unit restructure its pension obligations over retiree objections. Can you take us through some of the analysis of that?
1: Sure. So I'll start with uh, the fact that, of course, this is really hard to predict in advance.
0: Of course, and I should say you've already pointed out that the law is very murky in this area. So maybe I should reframe in terms of what the question, a little bit more on what the the questions are that one would ask that we know come from Supreme Court case law, but you're seeing play out in in particular contexts?
1: So usually, if you have a situation where a government is trying to change pension benefits for existing employees, usually the first question that the court has to deal with is, what exactly does the contract protect? So we've talked about the fact that most states have have decided that this is a contractual issue, but we see a lot of variation in the states in terms of what exactly does the pension contract cover. Um, and to give you an example of the, the range that we see there, we have some states like California which have the broadest conception of a contract which is on your first day of, of employment in a pension eligible position you and the government form a contract that protects not only any pension benefits that you have already earned, but it actually protects the rate of accrual going forward. So essentially in California, they say there's a contract in place on day one, and you can't change anything about the pension formula to the employee's detriment as of that day. On the other end of the spectrum, you have states that say pensions are contractual, but only once the employee has fully completed their side of the bargain, meaning until the employee is eligible to retire or in some cases even has retired and started receiving a pension, there is no protection yet. So even though most states are contractual, there is a lot of variation in terms of what really does that mean in terms of the level of protection that's provided.
0: So on that side of the spectrum, does that mean, so somebody has been working for the state for 10 years, they're still far off from retirement, there is more flexibility for the government to change the fu- future benefits?
1: Right. Right. In in your example, in some states, they would say what that person has already earned in their 10 years of employment, that's protected. But going forward, anything can be changed. But there are some states that have held that person that's worked 10 years, that benefit is not protected until they actually retire. And start receiving their pensions, so there and some of this is older precedent that came out of very different facts, but it at least looks like in some states you could actually retroactively reduce what they've already earned.
0: wow, so in those cases, we hope that we would see higher higher wages uh, and perhaps better other benefits and other things, which is a Perhaps an empirical question for a different day. So, if something is within the contract, then the question is in when a state or other government unit cannot afford it or says they cannot afford it, which I know raises valuation questions. Uh, wh- right. What are the what then are the questions that we would uh, break down from the contracts clause jurisprudence?
1: Sure. So once you say something does fall within the contract. Sort of that's step one, then step two would be looking at what the government is proposing with respect to changes to the pension benefits, is that considered a substantial impairment? Um, if the answer to that is no, so if you say what the government is doing is not a substantial impairment, you don't have a contracts clause issue, so the change should survive. If you say, yes, this is a substantial impairment, you then go to step three, which is, well, was the substantial impairment reasonable and necessary in order to serve an important public purpose? So the basis for that test is that states, of course, are sovereign powers. And the thought is a sovereign can't contract away their basic sovereign rights. A state always has the right to act to protect the health, safety, and welfare of its citizens. So that last clause about reasonable and necessary to serve an important public purpose is about respecting the state as a sovereign. Um, But it does give them the ability to substantially impair a contract in some circumstances.
0: Uh, Presumably that would be as we've seen to some extent, an invitation to to litigation or objections, I assume, between sub- the term substantial for the prior step and then reasonable and necessary, uh, that that is not only a legal question, but there would be a lot of facts that would be brought forth about what other changes could be made in order to get these obligations funded or paid, uh, and then uh, giving a lot of discretion to a court on that uh, on that ruling, is that a fair assessment of why we're partly unsure of where this where this goes
1: absolutely um, the substantial impairment clause or uh, prong of the test a lot of courts will simply assume substantial impairment um, so you don't see too many cases get get sort of hung up on substantial impairment. Um, I think a lot of times, if there is any negative effect with respect to the actual dollar amount a pensioner is going to get um, versus before the change, courts will just say, that's a substantial impairment, right? Any any reduction in your pension amount is substantial. Um, but they don't really interrogate that issue. They just say, we're going to assume it and move forward. Um, We have seen some decisions where, at least as alternative holdings, the court has said that small reductions are not substantial. So, for example, in Minnesota, we reduced cost of living adjustments in certain pension systems here. And it was about a 1% or a 1.5% reduction, depending on what plan you were in. And in that case, the court first said there wasn't a contract that protected COLAs, but then went on to say, even if there was a contract, that type of small reduction is not a substantial impairment.
0: Well, that small reduction can add up to a significant amount over
1: time, right? Uh... Absolutely. Which is why I think most courts assume any reduction in dollar amount is substantial. Um, But I pointed out just to say some courts do appear to be applying some type of materiality standard to it. Um, But right, that 1% or 1.5% over someone's lifetime um, can be very sizable.
0: Yes, and we certainly saw that in the Detroit bankruptcy for one of the groups of retirees that didn't take a, a otherwise take a cut to the pension, but lost cost of living, that some people interpreted that as they took no losses at all, and that seems incorrect to me, uh, that that was going to make a significant difference, and if we had put that in terms of a bondholder, uh, losing that amount of, of it, uh, increase, that people would have reacted rather differently, but, uh, so I, but I, I take your point that we do see some variation on how courts are going to address these these various steps.
1: Right. That third step, reasonable and necessary to serve an important public purpose, is where we really see a lot of factual development and just very different analyses by various state courts. Um, Reasonable and necessary to serve an important public purpose sounds, I think, to most people like it would be a pretty easy test to meet. I think if we looked at that just in terms of plain English it it sounds like well as long as the state has some reasonable justification for addressing the underfunding they're allowed to do it Um, but it is in fact a a much harder test than that based on what the U.S. Supreme Court has told us about it um, which is essentially for it to be reasonable and necessary to serve an important public purpose it has to be the least drastic method of achieving your policy outcome. And as you can imagine, courts have very different views about what it means for it to be the least drastic method of, in this case, generally addressing severe pension underfunding.
0: Sure. It seems like a question of what what are the other trade-offs that can be made? What what other choices can we question about the state or the government unit that would make it possible? to uh, to to honor the contract in full and certainly there're going to be a wide range of views on that on that point right. and one of the most difficult but I think interesting reasons that, uh that people are finding municipal bankruptcy so so challenging is this question of the of the trade-offs between these Absolutely. obligations and beneficiaries of, and stakeholders so one thing that comes up a lot in recent discussions whether on the few the handful of of well-known municipal bankruptcy cases or or Puerto Rico or other contexts is the role of the state constitution. And so I don't mean funding mandates, which you've written about very well, uh but th- I do refer instead to assertions of priority, assertions that a certain creditor is particularly important that's in the state constitution rather than being in a statute. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about whether that, how much significance, legal significance, that is given in your experience.
1: So there there are not many, but there are a handful of states that have Specific language in their constitutions about the protection of pension benefits. Um, Notably, given what what's in the news these days, Illinois and Michigan, for example, both have language in their state constitutions that refer to pension benefits as contractual in nature and state. They shall not be diminished or impaired. There's slight differences in the language between Illinois and Michigan, but same basic idea. Um, And as you know, there have been various discussions about whether that changes anything um, with respect to how we think about the protections given to pension benefits. Um, I can tell you my perspective on it and then talk a little bit about Illinois and and Michigan. Um, In the course of doing my research about how states protect these benefits and sort of looking at the states that have constitutional provisions in place, I view the the constitutional language, at least in, in most cases, as having been added to overcome the previous rule about public pensions which was that public pensions were a gratuity. We we haven't talked about that because only one or two states has any uh, allegiance to this rule anymore at all, but for many, many years it was the case that because pensions for public employees were granted by the sovereign, the rule was the sovereign Uh, because they're sovereign, can change uh, its mind at any time, right? Um, Pensions were considered simply gifts legally that could be withdrawn or amended at any time or for any reason. Um, And it's understandable why states chose to move away from that, right? You could have someone that had worked for 30 years and earned a pension and the state could decide, We don't want to pay the pension anymore so we're not going to Um, and this struck most people as unfair and so states were looking to change the result for their pensioners and that I think is why you see the constitutional provisions that we see in some states they they thought we want to make it abundantly clear that this isn't a gratuity right that we mean for pensions to be contractual and so um, when I look at that language, I think all it's doing is is being clear about the contractual label, and let me say a little bit of something about why, um, why they might feel the need to do that and do it in the state constitution. I think that stems from the fact that generally, especially at the state level, these pension benefits are granted by statute and statutes are generally not considered to form contracts absent unmistakable legislative intent to form a contract. We normally think of legislation as just being a current statement of policy that a future legislature can change. And so putting it in the constitution gives that unmistakability to the contract label. Right, courts, State courts aren't gonna have any question about is it a gratuity, is it a contract? It's in the state constitution that it's a contract. And so my view is these provisions generally don't have any legal significance other than being clear that the benefit is considered a contract and everything that that carries with it. Now, the Illinois Supreme Court absolutely disagrees with that position. So um, in the context of Illinois' pension reform efforts, that of course got litigated, it eventually went up to the Illinois Supreme Court, and the Illinois Supreme Court said, it doesn't just mean it's a contract, it means it's a contract that cannot be diminished or impaired. Essentially they said that means there's no police power argument. which refers to that third prong of the contracts clause test, right? It was saying you can't argue that the change was reasonable and necessary to serve an important public purpose. That constitutional provision is absolute. It, it does not allow for any argument. Um, so I gave you my view, but it, it has not been, Certainly, it hasn't been accepted by the Illinois Supreme Court. And then in Detroit, um, as, as your listeners probably know, um, are more familiar with, there the question was, does the fact that it's in the Constitution give it some special status? And of course, in that case, the bankruptcy judge found that it did not. It just did label it a contract. So given
0: where we are in Illinois, exactly as you say that the Supreme Court does not think that the pension reform efforts in that state can go forward over the objections of the contract parties, the other contract parties. What's your take on where Illinois is going? What should we be looking for in that dispute? We all, we've all we we lived through the arguments and maybe they'll come back again about whether states should be able to file for bankruptcy. Short of that, what 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 would you have us focus on in in Illinois's pension underfunding situation?
1: So I think the Illinois situation is really tough. You've got severely underfunded plans at both the state and the municipal level, and you have a Supreme Court that has said these benefits are absolutely protected so my sense is that Illinois, you know, putting aside, you know, possibilities of state bankruptcy, um, the real issue in Illinois becomes, so if these benefits are absolute, how do you pay for it? And what does that mean with respect to other governmental services? Um, and I don't, I don't know that anyone knows how exactly that is going to work work out, right? Um, I think there has been talk about, you know, lengthening out the um, repayment of, or I shouldn't say repayment, lengthening out the funding schedule, right? So allowing the plans to take longer to get up to acceptable levels of funding. Um, I don't know to what degree that's really going to solve any problems,
0: Kicking the can uh, down the road approach. Is that... Right,
1: which is very common in public pensions. And um, as well as very... other
0: other government obligations sometimes, too. Right, yes. absolutely.
1: <laughs> it's always convenient to make it someone else's problem. Um, you know, in the city of Chicago, obviously they've, they've been pushing tax increases, um, but it, it if pension obligations are fixed, then it becomes an issue of how do you pay them and pay for everything else the government should provide. And so then it becomes per, perhaps a revenue issue, right? How can you increase your revenue? Um, that becomes very tricky, especially at the municipal level, because there's, there's clearly some cap on taxes, right? If, the city of Chicago tries to solve its pension issue solely by raising taxes, I think you will see people leave the city. Um, because when you get in these situations, you can have essentially taxpayers paying more but getting less because they are their taxes are going to fund past government services, not future ones. So the, the revenue side is tricky. Um, you know, and then it's, it's a hard look at, at what are the essential government services? Where can we cut? These are not easy issues. Um, I don't look at Illinois and think there's, there's an easy solution there.
0: So let's think for a minute about, even if we don't, we're not sure how to fix the problems that exist, how to prevent this from happening over and over and over again in the future. Uh, I've seen in your work both some talk about the substance of reforms and also the process, some sort of uniform law movement, which doesn't work, uh, partially probably because of the politics that you you also pointed out uh, has not necessarily been successful. But what kind of changes can both protect the retirees who ultimately, if they don't get these pensions, will need other forms of support uh, without creating these these big budget problems,
1: right? This is in terms of preventing this going forward. I think if you are going to stick with a defined benefit system, and I think that there are um, there are good reasons to prefer a defined benefit system with respect to uh, retirement savings policy, right? it is well i'll I'll leave it at that i think there are reasons why um, there might be a lot of interest in staying with a a defined benefit system and by that i just mean a traditional pension that pays out a guaranteed amount at retirement for as long as the participant lives versus um, a defined contribution system which is 401ks are the easiest example of that where all that's guaranteed is is the contributions to the savings account, and you sort of end up with whatever's in your savings account when you retire. So assuming we want to stick with defined benefit plans, we have to come up with a way to ensure adequate funding. So I think the the research by financial economists shows pretty convincingly that we are not in the situation we're in because of solely because of the market downturn in you know 2007, 2008, uh, and forward. We're really here because of systemic underfunding, that year after year, governments have not been putting enough money in these plans, uh, and they've, they've utilized a wide variety of methods to underfund, but there's been pretty significant systemic underfunding. Um, I think the most meaningful reform that could be made going forward is coming up with a way to ensure adequate annual funding.
0: Well, that seems a a governance question of how, and that may be where you're going to go next, of how, just like we talk about with private corporations, how to make sure and properly incentivize and compose the bodies that run these pension systems or is that is that only part of the problem?
1: So I think it is only part of the problem. Um, there, there's, a, there's certainly a lot of room for improvement with respect to public pension governance but when it comes down to it these plans rely on getting a budget appropriation from the legislature you know, either every year or every two years, depending on how the state works. And so it ends up being a matter of essentially controlling the legislature in its budget appropriations. And that is a an uncomfortable role for law to play, right? Normally we say, look, that's that belongs to the legislature. Legislature holds the power of the purse. Um, The problem is the political economy so favors short-changing pensions that it has led to this situation where we see a lot of systemically underfunded plans. You know, you you have balanced budget amendments, which there may be good reason for that, but you've got balanced budget amendments that constrain allocations. You've got debt limitations that constrain allocations. And pensions, unless the fund is going to run out of money tomorrow, are seen as a problem you can put off. Um, And I think if we could change that dynamic, if we could somehow better either incentivize or constrain legislatures, um, that would do a lot of good. I think if you are going to offer this benefit to workers, you should responsibly fund it. And, and I think that's probably the missing piece that would have the biggest impact. Now, there's room for lots of other changes as well. But in terms of biggest impact, that's where I think we would see it.
0: So that's a perfect place to end. Thank you, Professor Amy Monahan. Thanks for having me. And thanks to the listeners. We'll be talking to you again soon.